I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Bob Sutton. Bob is an organizational psychologist and a professor of management science at Stanford Engineering School, where he researches topics like leadership, innovation, organizational change. Written many books, many best-selling books, The No Asshole Rule, Good Boss, Bad Boss, Scaling Up Excellence, and he's just written another one which we're going to be talking about today called The Friction Project, How Smart Leaders Make the Right Things Easier and the Wrong Things Harder, which comes out this month, January 2024. So thanks very much for joining me, Bob, and I look forward to discussing this with you. Uh, It's great to be here, Martin. I look forward to it. So I think we all have an intuitive sense of what your book is about, friction, you know, the stuff that gets in the way of work in large organizations. But how would you define it a little more precisely for us? Well, the way that we would define it is not in sense of physics. It's organizational friction. So it's when an employer or a customer tries to accomplish something and it's slower, harder, or downright impossible given their goals. So that's kind of where we started. And there's a lot of flavor of bad friction in there. But uh, along the way, we discovered friction is pretty useful sometimes too. So we can talk about that as well. But that's kind of the domain we're playing around in in this book. There are various words out there that people use to point to this sort of dysfunction in organizations. Rob Cross, I think we both know, talks about micro-stresses, the effects of things on people. And there's a literature that I've dabbled with a little bit on complexity, you know, excessive complexity in organizations. Are there any sort of nuances that you draw to distinguish friction from, from those other concepts? Well, I, I don't think that there's any really original ideas in management. One of my books with Jeff Pfeffer on evidence-based management, I propose Sutton's Law, which is that if you think you have an original idea, you probably don't, and this isn't original either. So I, I'm going to stand by Sutton's Law. So, so I try to stand on the shoulders of people who came before me. But I think, and I know Rob Crosswell, I actually just did an hour Zoom with him yesterday about, about an article about friction. And I think that our focus is more on what leaders can do in terms of their behavior and in terms of the design of their organization, to make the right things easier and the wrong things harder. So it's more of an organizational design focus than maybe some folks have, but but we always would draw on the best existing literature rather than claim that we have a breakthrough that nobody else has. Every book I've ever seen or any management consultant I've ever seen who claimed that is actually not telling the entire truth. So that's my point of view. <laughs> Very good. So that's, that's a healthy idea, Sutton's <laughs> Laura. Remember that. So I guess some of the costs and consequences of, of excessive friction are obvious. I mean, the work, you already said it, the work's impeded in some way. The value added is impeded. What are some of the other consequences of not thinking about friction enough? Well, some of the other consequences are, yes, there's efficiency issues, because if it takes more time for your customers to be in the system, it actually costs you more money. It requires more effort. But the parts that we tend to focus more on are the will, the emotional toll. I mean, I, I remember we were uh, teaching a class and one sort of middle manager at a large software company, I won't name them, and she said essentially that they expect me to show some initiative, but I feel like I'm wading through shit every day. And, and that feeling that you're trying to accomplish stuff but there's something about the system that makes it difficult or impossible for you to get it done. So that's, that's sort of the way that we, we started the book. I mean, we can talk about how, how our perspective evolved. And, and there's all sorts of evidence that when people feel excessively burdened, 
They're less creative. They tend to leave the organization. They just give up. And so that's all bad. But uh, there's also a lot of good news. That was one of the biggest surprises in the book was we encountered a bunch of causes of friction, of bad friction, but we also came up with a lot of solutions. And there's a lot of leaders out there doing great stuff. So we learned a lot from them. So I'd like to dig into that idea of you know, good friction and bad friction in a second. But first of all, in terms of bad friction or excessive friction, what are some of the, uh, the deep causes of, of that? Because presumably nobody does that by design. How is it that large organizations end up getting in their own way? I guess we, we have four key main causes. One is oblivious leaders, a leader who's not aware how their behavior unwittingly slows others. And this can be everything from overly long emails to being late to every meeting so everybody has to wait for you, to being enamored with initiatives that constantly slow people down. The second thing that we think about is addition sickness. This is a big issue. We humans, we are wired to solve problems by adding more people, more procedures, and so forth. And I mean, just, boy, last week, I spent really a lot of time with, well, let's say senior executives from a large software company that used to be a fast startup, and now it's impossible to get anything done. One of the problems is that they reward people. The more people report to you, the more you get paid. And so these people build these giant fiefdoms, and then they collapse under their own weight. And this is like a bad movie you see over and over again. So that's addition sickness. Then we talk about coordination problems. That's where you've got great pieces in the organization, but they don't fit together very well. Any of us in the States who have tried the American healthcare system, we all know it's a system filled with fragmentation and it's hard to move from one part to the other. And the communication across boundaries is terrible. So that's one. And then the last we call jargon monoxide. This is when people use essentially language that one another can't understand jargon, just nonsense, BS. And so those are sort of the four main causes that we dig into in the book. They really resonate with me in my work, actually. I mean, I, I do find that often I, I'd like to brainstorm an idea or make some suggestions, but I've, I've learned that I have to be very careful about it not being mistaken for an instruction because words have consequences, right? If, if everything that the leader says is, is acted upon, it, you do end up with a, a lot of complexity. I actually love what you're talking about. We talk about this as executive magnification. So as everybody in your audience knows, there's a huge literature on resistance to change. And every leader I've ever talked to has complained about how, you know, one CEO, the trolls in middle management are stopping my ideas. But there's actually a lot more evidence of what I would call, we call executive magnification, which is just as you described, when you send a weak signal, they charge ahead and do all the stuff that you never intended. Because that's the nature of hierarchy. When you're in a hierarchy with people in more powerful positions, people are monitor their behavior and they over-magnify them. So, so that's one of the unwitting causes of, of friction is, just as you say, is to say that's just a suggestion. That's not an instruction. It's exactly what a good leader does. In the spirit of confessional on this point, <laughs> I remember one of my subordinates some years ago said to me, I said, do you have any feedback? And this person said, yeah, if, if we come into a room with three ideas and ask you to prioritize, we walk out with 10. I remember saying, is that a bad thing? <laughs> so I think, I think this is probably what you're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. So I love that difference. And this is the hallmark of great leaders and great teams. And we know this. They go wide. They come up with a bunch of ideas. And then they narrow. And, and, and we have this little technique. I learned this from Patty McCord. We call him Patty's Partying Principles. Patty was uh, essentially the head of HR for the first 14 years at Netflix. 
And she said, I'd go to these meetings, be all these crazy ideas flying around. And at the end, I'd have no idea what happened. And, and she said, I started asking these two questions at the end of every meeting, which was, have we made a decision? If so, what is it? And the second decision is, who's going to implement it? So I like, I like those two decisions because having survived 40 years of Stanford faculty meetings, boy, I have no idea what happened in many of the meetings I've been to. Even in the book title, actually, you talk about making the right things easier and the wrong things harder. So you're not saying minimize friction. You're saying have friction in the right places. So, so tell us about good friction. What does good friction look like? There is an analogy that we've been using that I think helps me a lot in some of the executives that I'm working with, which is the race cars that win Formula One or NASCAR races are not the one that, where the drivers keep the pedal to the metal the entire time and never stop. Eventually, they'll die or run out of gas. <laughs> so they break in the corners and they do pit stops when they need to service it. So with using that as kind of an analogy, there's a whole bunch of times when adding good friction is useful in slowing people down. And I'll give two examples that I think are important. One is, if you look at the research on creativity, and you look at people who are great creators, they really understand that to do creativity right, there's a lot of friction in terms of failure, confusion, constructive conflict. It's kind of this messy process with a lot of failure. And, and we use examples, everybody from Jerry Seinfeld, from the Seinfeld series, to Ed Catmill at Pixar, who's right in your neighborhood just about. They talk about, we don't, they say, yes, we want to make things less efficient, but it's a messy process. And if you hurry it too much, it kills creativity. That's one thing that we focus on. And another thing, and there's this great research, it comes out of Germany, that looks at how people make decisions and solve problems based on their IQ. And what they found is people who have higher IQs solve uh, simple problems more quickly. But when it comes to complex problems, they solve them more slowly, but more accurately because they wait to sort of figure out all the complexity. And I love that example that when you have a complex problem, if you treat it as simplistic, you get yourself in trouble. Just to give an example, I think that we all saw what happened when the OpenAI board tried to fire the CEO and treat it as a quick and easy solution. And they didn't slow down to get Satya Nadella from Microsoft on board, just, just, or even to inform me, found out 20 minutes before Sam Altman was temporarily fired. And those, those are the times when you got to hit the brakes. And there's a lot of teams that I've worked with where they have the, the wrong mission, they have the wrong norms, and they've got to slow down and figure out how to fix things so they can hit the gas again. That resonates, this sort of embracing messiness in the right places and slowing down and reflecting. I guess what scares me about that idea, though, is that it sounds very judgmental. I mean, if, I guess if anybody's looking for a quick recipe to distinguish between good and, and bad friction, this seems to require judgment. Would you agree? Yes, it requires judgment and also a little bit of planning. It's actually the final three paragraphs or so of the book. So we talked to this woman, Clara Shai. Clara is well, now she's CEO of AI at Salesforce. I've noticed since she was a Marshall Scholar and number one in computer science at Stanford, she's really smart. So she talks about when she launches initiatives, new initiatives, new software projects and stuff, she has this perspective that first she tells the team that it's going to be messy, things are going to be screwed up, we have to embrace that it. it's not going to be beautiful and clean. But then being a good computer scientist, she has separation of concerns, which is a CS concept, computer science concept. She says, I have one team, their job is to execute the plan. I have another job, 
they're sort of like clean up on aisle nine. They're the ones who are ready for the unexpected stuff. They don't know what it is, but, but we have the capacity to sort of solve unexpected problems. And I really like that perspective of sort of planning for the unexpected, planning for the messiness when you're, in that case, launching like a software project. So it sounds like there's a, a connection with the concept that, that the strategists are quite fond of ambidexterity than the, the division of the messy stuff, the divergent stuff and the convergent stuff and making sure that you have both in an organization or a process, although not necessarily in the same team or the same person. Yeah. And to that point, I love the notion of ambidexterity. Uh, Charles O'Reilly, my colleague at the Stanford Business School, has been working on this stuff for 30 years I know of, and a fantastic, brilliant guy. And in, in friction, you sort of apply a friction lens. If you're in the creative process, you've got to slow down, you've got to accept the messiness. But when you're in the other side of the ambidexterity phase where you're doing implementation, that's where your job as a leader is to do organizational designs and have behavior that remove obstacles from people. You don't want to slow them down. That's why I'm so some of the methods we have we have in the book are things like the subtraction game, which we've played with a couple hundred organizations where we just say, what's driving you crazy? What's slowing you down? And sometimes they, well, maybe one executive vice president just on the spot, this was like on Zoom, he changes meetings, staff meetings every week to every two weeks. That's real subtraction. And it actually, that actually has an effect on, on a lot of people. And uh, we have uh, some tools for examining meetings. This is work we've done with Asana, where uh, 60 Asana employees, what they did was they rated every standing meeting they had in terms of how important it was and how much work it was. And then they started working on fixing their meetings and, and doing things like making them shorter, eliminating some of the worst meetings. And the average employee saved about four hours a month. So that's, that's the subtraction mindset that, that we like to instill, especially for routine things that get in the way of doing your work quickly. So you're, you're going into method there. Let's, let's go there. So I mean, you have a lot of techniques in the book, so you probably can't get through all of them. But if one's organization is stodgy and you're looking to remove friction or you're looking to train people on becoming friction removers, you know, what are some of the, some of the techniques and, and procedures that one can apply? Well, where we start is just with mindset and awareness, because there's two kinds of natures of human beings and organizations, I think, that all leaders know. But when you make them more aware of them, they do a better job. The first one is there's very good evidence that we as human beings are wired to solve problems by adding more complexity. Whether it's a recipe, planning a trip, fixing a university, very good evidence. So just being aware of that. And that research shows if you make people aware of subtraction, they're actually more likely to do it. So it requires some priming. And then there's the incentive systems that most organizations tend to reward people who add stuff rather than people who subtract stuff or don't add stuff in the first place. So the more people will report to you, the more initiatives you start. So just making aware of people and trying to get them into what we call the editor-in-chief mindset. We stole this from a venture capitalist named Michael Deering to have them think about subtraction. So to us, there's two parts of that process. We have a lot of nuances, but the first part is doing what we would call a good riddance review, which is figuring out what's slowing people down. There was a Hawaii Pacific, which is the largest healthcare system in Hawaii. There was a Dr. Melinda Ashton there. She started this get rid of stupid stuff campaign to try to get rid of elements of the electronic health system that was just in the way. And so they got 188 suggestions and they made 87 subtractions. So that would be an example 
of doing an analysis of what needs to be gotten rid of and in interacting. And then there's going through the other processes of getting rid of friction and doing subtraction. One thing we really, really like, and a lot of the great executives we've worked with use this, is using good friction to reduce bad friction. And the best simple example I know, there's a guy named Laszlo Bach. Laszlo was essentially head of HR at Google for about eight years. He wrote a great book called Work Rules. And Google had a tradition that went way back to the earliest days where when they would hire somebody, they would do five, eight, 10, 12, he said as many as 25 job interviews before giving them an offer or not. And talk about friction, you gotta schedule all that stuff, you piss off all these candidates, all these problems. And this worked great in the old days, but it was causing all sorts of friction in the system. So what Laszlo did was he put in a simple rule, which is that if you need to do more than four interviews, you have to write me, the executive vice president for people, for permission to do more than four interviews. And he said the number of interviews that dropped was just spectacular. And there's not usually magic bullets in organizational life, so I even worry about telling stories that were that simple. But to me, that's a case of thinking about ways, how can you make it difficult for people to add more burdens on others, I think is, is, is a good management principle. I was wondering, reading your book, whether there's just something intrinsic to the very nature of organizations which, which creates friction in the sense that, you know, the messy startup proceduralizes and, and professionalizes and the processes that it put in place can, under ideal circumstances, be great economies, but they can also be impediments if, if things change, they can contradict each other. It, it seems to be sort of quite intrinsic to the very nature of what a bureaucracy does in some ways. Yes, I, I think it's intrinsic. And I like the notion that you're talking about the stuff that happens in startups that allows them to move fast actually becomes an impediment later on. We did a case of Uber. This was with Tuan Pham, who was the CTO for the first eight or nine years. And one of the things that enabled them to scale so quickly was they had a norm that every engineering team could kind of do whatever they wanted including what programming languages they use. There was like all these programming languages flying around and they had these kind of microservices, these really fast moving teams. But then as I love the way that Tuan put it, he said, what I've got now is I've got 400 speedboats going in 400 different directions. And even though their velocity is high because there's so many coordination and collaboration problems, the organizational velocity keeps going down. So he said, I've got to turn them into kind of an armada. <laughs> so you know, have some coordination among them instead of them all going in different directions. So that was sort of the organizational change problem that he faced. It struck me reading your book that you're dealing with sort of two very different strategies in a way. One struck me as like a psychological strategy, which is awareness, mindset, seeing the frictions, you know, having the right attitudes. And the other one was sort of acting directly at the operational level, remove this, remove that. And your book is fairly even-handed in terms of, it seemed to me, proposing action on both parts, you know, awareness, mindset, and also operational intervention. I'm wondering whether, two things, I guess. One, one is, would sort of work on mindset alone, allowing entrepreneurialism of friction removal be sufficient? And then the other one is, if the answer is no, could attempts to mitigate friction become a friction in their own right? Oh, I love your question. Well, first of all, just mindset alone is never enough. That ends up being, honestly, talk is a substitute for action in what is often called mindset. And people just say the stuff, they say what the CEO wants to hear, and then nothing changes. I've seen this with every management movement ever. 
going back to the quality movement design thinking, agile, blah, 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 blah. People talk about it, they don't do it. So yes, when you start making structural changes, you might want to, I don't know, eliminate the number of layers in some organization, add more layers. We talked about reducing the number of meetings, having more rules to make it more difficult to add. But one thing that somebody has already asked me, does this mean that organizations should have chief friction fighting offices? You know, like a CFO, but a different meeting? And my vehement answer is no. Those end up being symbolic roles. They end up adding more friction. And one of the challenges, and this isn't just mindset, it's incentives and structure too, is that very often getting rid of obstacles becomes an orphan problem where everybody points fingers at everybody else, but it's really everyone's responsibility. And uh, and I'd give you an example, since we're both in, in California, is that one of the positive examples we give in the book, and we're digging more into it, is the California Department of Motor Vehicles. And I can't believe I'm saying positive things about the California Department of Motor Vehicles, but I visited there and I couldn't believe how good a visit I had because I moved through the line so efficiently. And eventually we followed up and Huggy and I are talking with the leaders of the DMV and they are doing all this stuff to bring about systematic changes. And it's it's the head of it. It's the top team who's leading it. It isn't just the friction fighter's job. They're doing it with technology. They're doing it with process diagrams. And they're doing it with culture. They're doing it with who they promote in their branches. So they're doing all the systematic changes and they've gotten rid of a whole bunch of friction in the system. And, and I, I was joking, I was saying to a friend of mine who's an executive at a large software company, and I also said this to some Stanford leaders too, let's do what the DMV did. I can't believe I'm saying, let's learn lessons from the DMV, but they're not treating it as somebody else's job. They're treating it as everybody's responsibility in the system to do what they can to reduce destructive friction given the amount of influence they have. I guess at this time in technological history and being in this part of the world, we couldn't omit a reference to AI. I mean, it strikes me that your, your book is very human-centered. You know, it's about the, the complexity mainly as experienced by the humans and what humans can do about it. And of course, we have a, a mental limit. You know, we have limitations of working memory and processing capacity. We can't handle complexity very well. But now we have algorithmic processes that can handle far more complexity. I mean, you know, the marketing department of of Amazon essentially is a set of self-adjusting algorithms that can balance prices across, you know, millions of segments and products at once. When you think about algorithmic complexity and mixed algorithmic people organizations, you know, sort of mixed cognition in organizations, would we need to change how how we view friction? The first thing, even though I've been a Stanford engineering faculty member for 40 years, I am not an AI expert, but of course, I'm just hanging out with them all the time. And well, there's two lessons about friction. One is that when we design algorithms, let's be concrete, if you are an Uber driver, your boss is an algorithm and is not a person. So when we design algorithms that, um, if you will, oversee or constrain human beings, we have to understand, make sure that those algorithms make the right things easy and the right things hard and also are difficult to game. So that's, that's one part of the friction, is that if you have an algorithm that's oppressive and actually causes people to get sick and to leave, you have a problem. And, and this is one of the challenges that Ubers have with adjusting their algorithm, is to make things so that uh, they don't drive their drivers crazy. So that's one problem. And then the other place where friction comes in, and this is some work that I'm starting to do with a woman named Rebecca Hines, who was actually her PhD student too, 
and she's at the Asana Work Innovation Lab. She heads it. And she makes this argument, an empirical argument, that when you look at how when AI is implemented, it supports people in their job, there's a good way and a bad way to oversimplify. And she's got data. The bad way is that the people who design the algorithms don't take the time to understand the work or get the people on board, the experts, they just dump it on top of them. In the good way, and she's got an example from an online clothing retailer, that when it worked, what happened was that the people who designed the algorithm were in constant touch with the experts, both to design the algorithm to support their job and so that they were on board. And this is back to the general idea in the book that knowing when to hit the gas and when to hit the brakes. When they tried to ram it down the throats of the experts at the clothing company, it didn't work at all. It was rejected. But when they slowed down and went back and forth and did a prototype that actually supported their work, they loved what came out and made their work better. It was an assistant rather than something that was oppressive and made their work harder to do. Yeah, that's interesting because I think you're talking about the machine-human interface. So it's almost like there's a, a complexity translation function there. The the machine interface can be as complex as it needs to be, as is technically possible, but the machine-human interface needs to somehow be able to fit human time scales and cognition scales. It's beautiful. Yes, it's beautifully put. I think that's perfect. I wish we could go on, but we're time constrained, so maybe if I could end up with a couple more personal questions. So I believe that you know academia is not immune to, to friction, <laughs> so then... I'm wondering how you use these ideas on your own work. Oh, bless. So, so one of the things, so there's a guy named Lydie Klotz who wrote a book called Subtract. And we actually have written some stuff about what we can do in academia. And one of the things that I've been driving, well, my dean and past provost are a little crazy, but we're kind of having fun. And I keep saying, suppose that we applied the rule of halves to everything we do. Suppose our emails, and I actually have given my former provost specific feedback Suppose all your emails were half the length they are now. Would we lose anything? And the example that we use in the book is I chaired a committee to promote somebody to tenure. I'll use your name, Melissa Valentine, fantastic scholar. And we had to produce, it was me, the committee, Huggy Rao was on the committee, a bunch of administrators, 113-page document. And we had 27 letters of recommendation, 27. And I said to our dean, suppose we had half the number of letters of recommendation don't you think we could have done it just as well and done it at a much higher speed? And I'm not saying the rule of halves should be applied to everything, but that's one of the ways I've been annoying my superiors. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I will give credit to them that, that they don't think that I'm crazy. In fact, there is a movement that's being led by our former provost and current CFO to reduce friction at Stanford. And so I'm not alone in this concern in my university. Yeah. I'm finding this to be really relevant to, to my job as we're talking, actually. I guess all managers would have informal intuitions on this topic, but it, I think you've done us a great service by codifying and putting, putting words and techniques around it. One of the techniques I use is adding a zero ah. to an aspiration and subtracting it from complexity. And I guess I can now conceptualize that a little more, thanks to you. Oh, well, that, that's beautiful. I think that's beautiful. I like that. that, that that's how a friction fixer thinks, in my opinion. Well, thanks uh, so much, Bob. I hope there hasn't been too much friction in this podcast, but it's, <laughs> it's been a delight. It's been a delight to talk about. You're really good about getting to the limitations and strengths of the human brain. I kept seeing you go back to that because, I mean, our organizations are just composed of a bunch of people who have those strengths and limitations. And I think when we remember that, we design better organizations. Indeed. So I've been discussing the Friction Project, how smart leaders make the right things easier and the wrong things harder with Bob Sutton. I would strongly recommend this book, which just came out. 
it's pretty universal, I think, to any organization. Any organization has to tune the complexity. And I myself have looked at how many organizations have explicit processes or procedures or methods for complexity removal. Very, very few. So I'm pretty sure there's a lot that leaders can learn from, from reading this book. If you like the conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.